Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For by your grace, you have included us in his victory over death, so that now we live because he lives. And we know that that life will never end in him. For all who are in Christ are baptized into his resurrection. And so, Lord, let us live each day rejoicing in that gift of life and let us share that joy with all those in our lives. And Lord, now as we pause this night to spend time in your word, may your spirit teach us from these words of Acts. May we learn more about your love for us and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 10. Does anybody remember anything about the book of Acts? It's been a while. It's been like 46 days or so, or 50 days now. Anybody remember anything from the book of Acts? Good. Saul's conversion is in chapter 9, which is right before chapter 10. That's very good. Okay? So, we're going to get to Saul's conversion. Remember, the book of Acts is... Pri- this is the easiest way to think about the book of Acts. The book of Acts follows two main characters. Peter and Paul. Okay? The book starts with Peter in Jerusalem. Right? Remember that? The the book basically starts around Peter as the leader of the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. And everything they do is in Jerusalem. Right? And that's where the church begins and Whenever anything happens, people go to Jerusalem, right? So the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 happens in Jerusalem, and all the people from the foreign countries come to Jerusalem, right? That's the movement of the first part of the book, is everyone, everything happens in Jerusalem, okay? And Peter is the guy. He is the apostle, and everything that happens, happens because Peter's doing it, Right? So Peter and John go to the temple and heal somebody. Remember, Peter's the guy who's doing it. Um, they Ananias and Sapphira go make an offering for Peter, which isn't, isn't really what they say it is, and so they fall over dead. You don't mess with Peter, right? Peter's healing people. Peter's preaching sermons. He's, he's um, choosing new apostles. It's all about Peter, right? Well, then... In Acts chapter 7, or early in 6, we learn that, that the church is actually larger than just Peter, and we start moving out from Jerusalem, we also move away from Peter. Okay? So then all of a sudden we get the seven deacons. Yeah? Remember this? There's this problem with waiting on tables, and the apostles are like, well, it's not right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables, so we'll elect seven deacons. And we learn about two of those deacons. We learn about Stephen and... and Theos. Well, Matthias is, the, is the, uh, the twelfth apostle. Good. So we learn about Philip and Stephen. Those are the two deacons we learn about, right? And Stephen is the first Christian martyr, right? And he's killed by a guy named... And his, his, his um, punishment, his death, is overseen by a guy named... Saul. Okay, so hold that thought. Philip is an evangelist, and the Spirit does what with Philip? Where does he go? We don't know where. You don't remember where, but it's not in Jerusalem. So now all of a sudden, after this, we have this period of of we're going away from Jerusalem. Right? Right? We're going to go away from Jerusalem and we're going to go away from Peter. So we're transitioning in the book away from Jerusalem and away from Peter. And so the gospel is going out. Right? So in the first part of the book, everyone's coming into Jerusalem. And then once we kind of get the church established in Jerusalem, everything's going to go out. Okay? And Peter's role diminishes. As the gospel goes out away from Jerusalem, Peter's role is going to diminish, but he's not gone. He's going to keep coming back. He's like a bad cold. You can't get rid of him. He's going to come back. Okay? 
But as Peter goes away, we start going into the story about Saul, right? Who we know also as Paul. And so Paul is going to become the main figure of the other part of Acts. So we are in this transition time between Saul starts showing up with the deacons, with Stephen. In chapter 9, Saul is converted to Christianity. But now in chapter 10, we're back to Peter. And what we're going to find out is that Peter and Paul are going to be major figures that get us to Acts chapter 15. Okay. And Acts 15 is what's called the Council of Jerusalem. I can't write. Okay? At the Council of Jerusalem, the entire church comes together to discuss one issue. And the issue is, can Gentiles be saved? Or do they have to become Jews first? That's the issue of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And that decision changes the entire history of Christianity. That decision in Acts chapter 15 is the turning point of Christianity. And it is the subject of Paul's writings. All of Paul's writings in the New Testament, right? So Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those are all in some way tied to this question of can Gentiles be saved or do they have to become Jews first? Okay, so don't forget, the question is Gentiles. What's Gentile mean? Non-Jewish. Non-Jewish. Anybody who isn't Jewish. Okay, and, and what, who's, what does Jewish mean? Um, descendant of Abraham. Good. Jewish means that you can trace your bloodline to Abraham. Right? So you might remember in the gospel to say, we have Abraham as our father. That's what the Jews say to Jesus. Right? We can trace our bloodline to Abraham. That means we belong to God's people. Right? Okay? So everybody in the world is either Gentile or Jew. Right? Because you either can trace your line to Abraham... Or you can't. That's all there is. So what was happening is um, a lot of the early Christians thought, well, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Therefore, are we saved by Jesus? You have to be Jewish. So they were saying, well, Jews can't eat certain foods. Jewish, Jews have to be circumcised. Jews have to keep a Sabbath. So in order to be Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Sabbath, and you can't eat certain foods. And the Gentiles are like, we're not Jewish. Those things don't affect us. They're like, well, then you can't be Christians. And Paul says, that's not true. Gentiles can be Christians without becoming Jews first. And in Acts chapter 15, the entire church met to say, is Paul right or wrong? That's the whole point. Now, what we're going to find out, and this is what we're going to get to tonight, this is why I'm bringing all this up, is that Peter is going to be the voice that tips the scale. Okay? Paul walks into Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and 49 AD and says, God called me to reach out to the Gentiles. And they go, well, you're a Pharisee that fell away from Judaism. Of course you're going to say that. I mean, that's, that's kind of your personal mission, but that doesn't prove anything. Just because you like them doesn't mean we have to. Right? Peter walks in and says, I agree with Paul. And then James, who is the leader of the Christian church at the time, says, if Peter and Paul both agree... I better reread the entire Old Testament and see if they're right. And he does. And he says, you know what? God agrees with Peter and Paul. We've got to rethink this entire idea. And what James says in, in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 is he says, according to the Old Testament scriptures, 
God will call the Gentiles his own people. They don't have to become Jews. They can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, just like we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And from then on, the gospel of the, of the church is faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That's the gospel. Jesus accomplished your salvation through his death and resurrection. You believe that, you are saved. You don't believe that, you're not. Right? No longer has anything to do with your nationality. Does anything to do with what you do or don't do? Right? Not whether or not you're circumcised, not, not what food you eat, not Sabbath day or not Sabbath day. It's simply all focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You believe that, you're saved, regardless of your nationality. Right? So that's what the book of Acts is getting us to understand as, as far as where we're at in Acts chapter 10. That's, that's the movement of it. So what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 10 is how does Peter learn this? How does Peter learn that Gentiles can be saved? That's the story of Acts chapter 10. Okay? That's the whole point of Acts 10, which you now know, so you can go home. Okay, now just a little review for all y'all, because it's been a while since we've done this. You are welcome to ask any question at any time, and I will give you any answer. Right? So, it's a choose your own adventure book. Yes, it is choose your own adventure book. So, um, seriously, if I'm if I'm saying something, you have a question that doesn't make any sense with what we're talking about, that's fine. Just ask. Okay. And if I go too fast, which I always do, ask, and I'll go back and try to do it again. Okay. So, any questions? Yes, Susan. Okay. You kind of glossed over I glossed over a lot. So, are you telling me that the early Christians don't have the Jewish dietary law? Yes. The early converts to Christianity still kept the Jewish dietary laws. Because they're Jewish? Yeah. That's how they were raised. You're going to read it in this passage. Peter will actually say to God, I have never eaten anything unclean in my entire life. And he's been a Christian for years at this point. Okay? Several years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter is still like, I've never, I've never had bacon. And we're going, really? You can live without eating bacon? Is that true? But, but yeah, so, so the Jewish Christians, meaning people that are ethnically Jewish, that have believed in Christ as their Savior, so they are Jewish Christians, they are still observing Jewish food laws. And they are still circumcised. And they are still observing Sabbath. So basically they're following the Old Testament Mosaic laws. laws. Mosaic laws. With the Christian bent. Right. How can you be... You talk about conflicting. No, they're not conflicted at all. They're not. They see it as one, one straight line. No conflict. Okay, remember, at this time, in the first century, it's called Second Temple Judaism, but that's a weird term. So in the first century, which this is all first century, right? Okay, so first century goes from 0 to 99 AD. Second century is 180 to 280 so, in the first century, if you are Jewish, there are, there are certain things that are called boundary markers. That's one, the one thing that someone says, and that's badges. But, but things that identify you as uniquely belonging to the Jewish people. And those things are food laws, circumcision, and Sabbath. Okay, so, and all of this is because you believe in one, one God. You're a monotheist, right? You believe in Yahweh. But when, when they talked about this is who we are as God's people and this is what sets us apart from the Romans and the Greeks and, and whoever else is out there, they say, we observe God's food laws, we're circumcised, and we keep the Sabbath. That's how you know that you're Jewish and you're not. 
That's the, that's the marker. Okay? Now, and we're going to see this in a second. In order to show your piety, your piety, just think of piety as how you live out your faith. Okay? You show your piety by almsgiving and prayers. This is two of the ways that you show you show what you believe, but these are physical marks of your belief. Okay? So this is what physically makes you a Jewish person. What you eat, circumcision, and observation of Sabbath laws. Okay? And there's a whole bunch of other stuff too, but those are the main ones. But this is how you actually live out your faith is through almsgiving, which means giving to the poor, right? And through your daily prayers. You know this from like the book of Daniel, right? Daniel prays and he gets in trouble for it. Yeah, remember that? Okay. You read this other place in the Bible where it says, and he went out for his, at the time of prayer. Okay, this, this is a Jewish thing. Does it make sense? So you've lived your whole life with this as your identity of who you are. That's just who you are. So it's not weird at all. That's just who they were. And, they, and Jesus came along and said, I'm that God's son. And they went, cool. They never thought about it. Until the issue of Gentiles who don't, don't do those things are also believing in that God. They're like, whoa, you can't do that. And they start saying, yeah, you can. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, they can. Right? So that's the problem. God told Peter what I had made That's what we're going to read out tonight. That's exactly right. You're exactly right. That's what we're going to, that's our text tonight. Is God says, don't call what I made, don't call it unclean. I'm calling it clean. You don't get to say it's unclean. That's exactly right. That's what, so that's why Peter goes, whoops. I, I might have gotten this a little wrong. Right? And then he sees it. Okay, so is that cool? All right, let's read some text. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Someone read that, please. At Caesarea, there was a man named Carnatus, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God Come, come in and say to him, Carnelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send them to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When an angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to God. Okay, thank you. All right, let's let's see. I mean, we got to get a little geography here, just so we know what's going on, right? Oh, I didn't draw that too well. That's the Holy Land. I know you feel like you're there, right? <laughs> Jerusalem is right there. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. So this is Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his stuff, right? This is the Jordan River. You recognize it? Okay, good. Oh, you've been like there. It. Just like it. Okay? Well, Caesarea is basically here. Oh, no, sorry. It's there. This is the Mediterranean Sea. It's spelled weird. I don't know how to spell it. Okay, Caesarea is basically there. Joppa is basically there. Okay, so he's just walking down the coast, basically, is all he's doing. It's, it's not that far. You can easily walk there in a day. Okay, but, it's, but this, is, this is Caesarea and Joppa. And Joppa is actually an ancient town. It was there Old Testament times. Caesarea is obviously a town that's named after Caesar. Caesar. So it's a Roman town. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's just kind of where we're at, and it does kind of make a difference later, but we'll see. So number one, who is Cornelius? He's a Gentile. He's a centurion. What does centurion mean? 
a Roman a Roman soldier in charge of 100 people. Okay? So he's, he's a general. He's, he's high up in the military. Who else? What else do we know about him? Italian cohort. Good. He's the, he's the centurion of the Italian cohort. Now, this is very important because the Italian cohort was made up of Italians. Isn't that clever? Now, this means that they were not conscripted into service, but they volunteered. And if you were accepted into an Italian cohort, you were the best of the best. And if you're the centurion of an Italian cohort, you were an Italian who volunteered to serve in Caesar's army, and you were the best of the best of the best, 100 times over. So Cornelius is an Italian, and he's the best soldier you got. One commentator said he's a man's man, right? He's a man among men. So this is a very, very impressive person, and also very, very Gentile, right? There's no Jewish in him at all. He's Italian. You ever seen an Italian? Not very Jewish. Okay? What else is he? Yeah, he's a devout man who feared God. So he's a God-fearer. Now, this term is one of the two terms you can use to describe a Gentile who believes in Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Okay, the God of the Old Testament. His name is Jesus in the New Testament, right? But a God-fearer is what's known, and there's different ways to talk about this, is a, is a proselyte of the gate is one way to talk about this. But what this means is these people had not become Jewish ceremonially. So they had not been circumcised with their males. They still ate food that was unclean. So they were not clean enough to enter into the court of the Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so they were, they were called gate proselytes, meaning they had to stop at the gate. There were G Gentiles who converted to Judaism, and they were called full proselytes, and the males had to be circumcised. They went through a ceremonial washing, and they had to eat the food law, the foods according to Jewish food laws. They were, they were considered full proselytes, okay, or converts. So he was a God-fearer, but not a full proselyte, meaning he was not circumcised and was not eating a Jewish diet. Okay, so he is a Gentile by birth and not doing these things. This is a big deal, right? What did I ask next? That's a good question. Makes sense. Yes, what did he do to evince his faith, to give evidence of his faith? The alms giving and the prayers. Right. See what he did? He didn't do these things, but he did these things. Okay? So he, he wasn't doing the stuff that makes you outwardly Jewish, but he did believe and he lived out his faith through almsgiving and prayer. Okay? So he believed in God, but he wasn't, he was still a Gentile, but he's living the life of a believer. And when it says that, let's see, where is it? In verse two, a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave alms generously to the people. The Greek word there for people is, okay, let me just say this and then I'll back up a second is the word for usually used for the Jewish people. This is not the word for general people. This is usually the word that's used to describe the Jewish people, especially in Luke's writings. So remember, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And Luke tends to use this word to denote the Jewish people. So what this means is Cornelius, this, this Roman centurion, right, of the Italian cohort is actually giving money 
to the poor Jews. Okay, so he's showing his faith and even serving the people who believe in Yahweh. Okay, so this is quite an amazing man at this point. But also a major problem because he's a Gentile. Does that make sense? So we're kind of conflicted about this guy Cornelius. By the way, the, the word Cornelius probably means, it, it's kind of a weird word. It kind of means like, like horn, like the dude of the horn or something like that. But remember, horn stood for strength. So his name probably is strength. Okay, it's, it's a name that probably evokes the imagery of, of power and strength. I always think names are fun in the Bible. So anyway, all right, number three. Wait, any questions so far? Are we good? Yeah, Susan. Okay. When you talk about food laws, yeah. you're, are you talking about keeping a kosher house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the Jewish food laws. You can't eat selfish, you, you know, whatever. All the stuff in the Old Testament. Clean and unclean foods. What we call kosher these days, yeah. Kind of, not exactly the same, but it's close. So the elaborate food laws, was that part of that whole where we talked about it being a curb, like there were all these laws that keep you from getting to the... No, this is okay. actually in the Old Testament. Okay. There are actually lists in the Old Testament of uh -huh. things you can and can't eat. Okay. And when. Right? It's okay to eat yeast, except during Passover. Then you got to get rid of all of it. You can't have it even in your house. So that's... There are lists in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. those, those ones are following. Yeah, there were some others that added to it, but, mm -hmm. but the ones that were really used as markers were the Old Testament okay. ones. Like, you can't eat pigs, ever. You can't even touch a pig, which is why football was invented later. Yeah, check. Uh, what, what year was this? This is probably 38 to 39. Why in the footnotes does it talk about him not knowing Christ? Who? Cornelius? Yeah. He doesn't, yet. That's why I keep saying the God of the Old Testament. That's a true thing. We're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So okay. What, so so what's so he's just following Old Testament laws at this point. Yep. Okay. He's just believing in the God of the Old Testament at this point. Whose name is? Yeah. Yeah, but his real name is Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't know that yet. He's gonna, he's gonna learn pretty soon. The God he's been following. Kind of like Old Testament believers who didn't quite get it yet. Okay, so that, that's the story of what's going to happen. But you're, you're spoiling the end. <laughs> <laughs> you He's going to meet well. the God he believes in pretty soon. <clears throat> he doesn't know it yet. We don't have a clue how he got to this belief system. Nope. Well, he's, he's working in a, in a Roman post inside of Israelite land. So he probably heard it from the people in town. Probably had heard it from the people that teach, the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were actually pretty good guys in general. They were walking around teaching the faith. They were walking around teaching the stories of the Old Testament, saying, hey, this is who God is. He sets us free from the land of Egypt. And, so, so he came from Rome. And he, he stationed in, yeah, he came from Italy, and he stationed in that podunk Israel. He got his call, on, you know, he got his assignment. He's like, oh, not Israel. Right? And his wife's like, oh, I don't want to go to Caesarea. And the Pharisees believed in Yeah, and the Pharisees actually did teach a resurrection, which is kind of interesting. Okay? So, yeah, we can't spoil it. We've got to get going pretty soon because we'll spoil it all. <laughs> all right, number three. How is the story about more than just Cornelius? Is it like a parallel to all Gentiles at this point? Good. So this is somehow teaching us that there are Gentiles who believe in the Yahweh of the Old Testament and are living out their faith. What do we do with them? Right? Remember, this is the predominant question in the book of Acts so far, is what do we do with these people and these situations that don't fit what we think should be happening here? This continues to be the question in the book of Acts. Now that Jesus is gone, what do we do? And just when we think we got it licked, what happens? Something totally crazy happens. And we go, 
Well, now what do we do? Right? I mean, just think about it. We went over this earlier. We, we got it totally figured out is that Peter is the guy, right? He's the first pope. Whatever. Not really. You know, but, but really, they think he's kind of the guy. I mean, people are falling over dead in front of him when they, when they contradict him. They walk by his shadow and they're healed, right? He speaks one word, a guy gets up and walks around and leaps and dances, praises God, the whole thing. They're like, dude, Peter's the man. And they think, well, everything's going to happen by getting everyone to Jerusalem to Peter. And then all of a sudden it just changes. There's a persecution and everyone leaves Jerusalem and takes the gospel with them. And all of a sudden it's not contingent on Peter at all. It's not even contingent on the apostles. The lay people bring the gospel with them. And they go, that's not how it's supposed to work. And God says, I didn't ask you, right? Yeah, I'll do what I want. I didn't ask you. I didn't ask your advice. And that's what the book of Acts is as the church figures out how this is working. So this is another situation that we're being set up as readers to say, here's a guy, an Italian guy, a Roman soldier, really important, and yet a proselyte, but not a full proselyte, so he's still a Gentile, and yet he's faithful to God. Strange. And he's praying... And God hears his prayers. Right? So this story is actually a big story about what about Gentiles who believe? That's the question. All right, number four. So what is the role of the angel? He's a messenger. Good. What is his message? What? Go, go find Simon, who is called Peter, who is staying with Simon, who is called the Tanner. Could you have made this a little easier, please? It's kind of like there's this guy who lied to Peter. His name was Ananias. And there's this guy that helped St. Paul and baptize him named Ananias. What? There, that's just weird, isn't it? Okay, so the angel comes, but here's what, here's what I want you to see. The angel does not proclaim the gospel. The angel tells him to go get Peter who will proclaim the gospel. Right? This is not a bad thing to do. Just read through the Bible and look at the role of angels especially in the New Testament. They're always the guys that are like, hey, uh, you need to go, either this is going to happen and God's going to do this through that, or you need to go over there because this guy needs to tell you about Jesus. That's their job, right? So who does God use to spread the gospel to people? Other people. People. We can't forget that. That's an important thing is God uses people to spread the gospel to people. So here's, here's the thing for you to ponder is, are you a people? Yeah, that you might be one that God is going to use to spread the gospel to somebody else. Right? Do you know the gospel? Are you a sinner? Well, you are entirely qualified to be one of those people that God uses then to talk to other sinners about the gospel. <laughs> right? I mean, it's that simple. You don't need their qualifications. You're a sinner who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done for you on the cross, and you can walk up to anybody in the world and say, I'm a sinner just like you, and this gospel is true for you just as much as it's true for me. Right? That's it. That's all it takes. And, and look out, because God does stuff like that. Okay? So the angel comes and he says, go talk to Simon Peter. What's the next question? I should memorize this. I didn't. Oh, we're done with this section. I was afraid of that. <laughs> Okay, now a couple of things to, just to look at real quick is, um, oh, let's not. Let's just move on. <laughs> Any questions? We'll get off on a tangent. Any what? questions in that section? Yeah, what? Tangent? No. Okay, let's read the next section. 9 through 16. Let's read 9 through 16. Peter went up on the housetop.
sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came, came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, thank you. All right. So, number five. How was this similar to Cornelius? Cornelius had a vision. Yep. So they both have visions. And? They're both praying. And? They get a message. They get a message. And it's a little weird. Okay? And it also involves... So it's was that good Jewish laws and this interaction now between clean and unclean. Okay, so this is all kind of this commonality between Cornelius and his vision and Peter and his vision. Now, what what? Yeah, we'll skip that too. I'm trying to avoid tangents today. Okay, so what does Peter see? Okay, I can't stop myself. He's on the roof because he's living with a tanner. Do you know what a tanner does? He tans dead animal skins, which means the house stinks. So Peter's on the roof because inside stinks. But he's hungry because it's noon. It's time for lunch. And he's up, up on the roof thinking about food, trying to get away from the stench. And he's praying, you know, because it's time to pray and it's time to eat. And he has a vision about food. And he can eat whatever he wants because he's hungry. Right? I, I fall asleep at noon, I dream about pizza. That's the way it goes. And God says, order one. <laughs> eat it. Is he hallucinating because of the smell? Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens. A lot of people have read this text to think that this is a hallucination that Peter has because of the fumes and because he's hungry. Okay? So, this is something I just want to bring up, is that a lot of people read the scriptures and they will... demythologize them. They will read scripture and say anything that could be, could be described using logic or science should be described that way. And the biblical writers were not as educated as we are, so they assigned all these things they didn't understand to divine interaction, angels, demons, spiritual forces, but we're too smart for that, right? We we're, know we're more than they do. We know there aren't such things as demon possession. You just take a Tylenol, you'll be fine. Have you ever heard anybody read the Bible that way? And what they'll do is they'll come to this passage and say, well, Peter was just hungry in a house full of fumes, so he had this weird vision where he just, he got tired of all the Jewish food laws. He's like, well, maybe this isn't that big a deal. I'm living with a tanner. I was going to eat what he's throwing away. I don't care if it's clean or not. I'm just hungry. And, and this is actually a very common reading of this text, is that this is actually Peter's self-discovery that these Jewish food laws are oppressive, and he doesn't eat them anymore. Okay? I actually heard this in a, in a, in a church one time, that the, the feeding the 5,000 is really a story about learning to share. 
that Jesus was like, well, I didn't bring any food. Did you guys? The disciples were like, I didn't bring any food. And they're like, did you bring any food? Nope. Did you bring any food? Nope. This little boy's like, I'd be happy to share my lunch. And they're like, oh, we could share. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, I do have some food. I just didn't want to share it with you. But because that kid's so awesome, I'll give you some wine bread. And they all got together and sat down and shared food. See, and Jesus really did nothing. He just taught us to share. So that is actually one very popular way to read the scriptures. And you're going to hear it more than you know. Um, Let's not read it that way. Let's take it as it comes to us. Because the way the story was written for us was that God is doing all of this. And there is a spiritual realm that exists. And there are angels and demons and a spirit that's holy. And people's lives are affected by the existence of God. Sound good? That's what I believe. And we got to always be careful of this, is that we don't fall into this trap of saying, well, the scriptures were written back when they didn't understand as much. Now we know more, and therefore, we know better. better. Jesus said, take ye, this is my body. We go, well, we know that that can't really be both bread and his body at the same time. Therefore, it isn't. They go, well, what if it is what he says it is? What if he actually is God in the flesh and he's not limited by such things as more knowledge is better knowledge, which I'm not even really sure that is. See, what if we actually just read the scriptures as they're given to us and, and believe that God is the one who gave us these texts to be read at all times and in all places? And then all of a sudden you read the story and you see that This is actually a major issue in the church. And and Peter, as the lead apostle, is receiving from God instruction to address the church's main issue, which is, can Gentiles be saved? And God's answer is? Yes. And don't call them common. They are mine. See? So... I'm just telling you this because it happens a lot and a lot of times you don't even get it. Like the History Channel always does this. The entire internet does this, usually. Okay? So be careful. People will explain away all the miracles in the Bible with some kind of other explanation. No. This is what happens when God shows up. Right? When God shows up, things look a little weird. That's good. We like that. And we want God to show up more often, right? I know a church where he shows up every Sunday. You ought to come. Is it still free? It's still free. Yeah, I checked. We're running a post-Easter sale. <laughs> if you come, it's free. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, you ready for another tangent? Yes. I'm very con- okay. Yes. So we talked about circumcision being replaced by baptism. After yep. Where does the food laws fit in? Good. Whew. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around it and I can't find it. All right. Well, this is actually very important because, because look at what, what God says in 15. The voice came to again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. Okay. This is going to be a little strange, so just hang on. In the Old Testament, things were either holy or common. Okay? Holy things were, clean. were always clean. Common things could be either clean or unclean. Okay? The goal of the, all the washings and the weird sacrifices and the leaving the, the camp for seven days in the Old Testament that you read about or you skip in Leviticus and Numbers and all that kind of stuff, that was if, you were, if something common becomes unclean, there's a ceremony to make it clean. If something holy becomes unclean, what do you do with it? You burn it or you kill it or you bury it because it... 
It's not holy anymore. Right? Yeah? Does that make sense? So the whole point of the sacrificial system is to move things from unclean and common to clean and common and finally to holy. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system. So I touch a dead body, which is unclean. I'm now common and unclean. So I have to go through seven days of purification and I have to drink the, the water that has the ground up ashes of the heifer that we sacrifices for all these things that are outside the camp. And when I drink that water, I am moved from unclean to clean. But then if I want to go into the tabernacle, now I have to approach the priest who will offer a sacrifice to make me holy. Okay? But I can't ever be holy. There's only one who's holy, and that's the high priest. So in order for my sins to be sacrificed before the altar of God, I'm not ever going to become holy in myself because I'm going to stay in the, in the common area, although I've gone from unclean to clean. So now I need one who is holy to enter the holy place in order to approach a holy God to offer sacrifice on my behalf, and that's the high priest. And he goes in once a year. And he represents all of us as a holy person in front of a holy God. So all the food laws were a way for you to stay clean. If you eat an unclean food, you become unclean. Okay? Now, why? I don't know. But that's just what God said. These are clean, these are unclean. And then once we've got Jesus and we can approach him without... So now Jesus is holy and common. He is God and man. and man. And like all men, he is... Oh, wait, no. He's not unclean. Ever. But he takes your uncleanliness onto himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says... He who knew no sin became sin for us, right? So he who was never unclean became unclean for you so that you might become the righteousness of God, so that you might become holy. So now all of these laws are about common and holy and unclean and clean are all sucked into Jesus. And in his very flesh, he, he absorbs all the uncleanness and all the cleanness. And, he, and when he dies and rises, God says, holy, clean, right? And now when you are baptized into that, God says, you are holy. What's the New Testament word for that? Sanctification. Sanctify is to make something holy. Right? Sanctification is God's making you holy. How? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. See? It's still the same thing. We're still moving toward a holy God. I can't get there by taking my own uncleanness and getting rid of it. I can't. There's a sacrificial system for that. Well, the sacrificial system doesn't actually work. I'm still going to continue to be unclean. So God said, no, this whole thing was actually pointing ahead to one sacrifice. That. The entire sacrificial system is that. And so when the Son of God dies as a blood sacrifice, as a peace offering, as a wave offering, as an oblation, all these offerings, all into one sacrifice, now he says, no more laws that separate clean and unclean. Right? All sin makes you unclean. And Christ forgives sins and makes you not just clean, but holy. That's why Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. The holy ones, right? Saint means holy one. To the holy ones in Ephesus. Why? Because they are in Christ Jesus. So that's where all your laws go. They okay. all go to the cross. So because we are now made holy, we can skip so and skip no, the wrong word. But not skip. Now nothing can make you unclean. Okay. What does Jesus say? Nothing that enters a man through his mouth can make him unclean. Remember, Jesus actually says that in Mark. Right? What does he say? 
Because he says, like, think about this. Food doesn't make you unclean. What happens to food? You eat it, your stomach does something to it, and then what happens? What did Jesus say? You poop it out. That doesn't make you unclean. What makes you unclean is what comes out of your heart. All kinds of vile stuff, like murder and jealousy and gossip and slander. That's actually what makes you unclean. See, and so what he's saying is, all these food laws was actually a reminder to you that God who dwells in your midst is the one who is holy. Right? And your sinfulness separates you from God. And it's only by the action of God that he can bring you back to himself. That action of God was, was played out by the priests and the Levites in the sacrificial system. And now we have one greater than the priests and Levites. Right? Remember the book of Hebrews we studied together? Only the high priest could go in once a year, but now we have one who is better than that high priest. Our high priest is Jesus. Not, not once a year, but once for all. Has gone into the heavens and has made you clean. Does that make sense? So that's what we do with all the laws of the Old Testament. We take them to Jesus. And then we live... We live still believing that God cares about clean and unclean, right? He still cares whether or not you sin or not. That's an important thing. And you should not sin, right? But we learn that it's not food that determines that. It's actually living out our lives as holy people. Love for God, love for neighbor. So were uncircumcised men of that era considered unclean? Yes. They, were in, they could not become holy. They could not become fully clean. They couldn't enter the temple. So they were always unclean. Yep. So that was tied somewhat into cleanliness. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of these things you look at, you're like, oh, it actually is physically clean. I mean, even the drinking of ashes and stuff, ashes were actually used as soap. So it's, it's, a, clean, it's a cleansing idea. Right? They had ceremonial washings in water that would actually clean things. So yeah, there's actually physical cleanliness going on. And a lot of the clean laws are also get out of the camp because you have a disease. Which, I don't know if you know that or not, but my mom did not understand that law at all because when we got chicken pox, we had a bath with our neighbor somehow. <laughs> it's like, Mom, I think he's unclean. He's got stuff all this. She's like, no, you're going to get it too. I, I, I don't know if you guys, you guys might be too young for that. Back in the no. day, remember that? Oh, yeah, you, you yeah. we don't do that pox. anymore now. But yeah, like one kid got chicken pox, a whole neighborhood came over. It's like, let's just all get it at once. <laughs> Brilliant strategy. It's amazing I survived my childhood. But that's now, what they did back in the now day. Now they have vaccines for that. Yeah, now they have vaccines. And it's like, ugh. Yeah. So anyway, does that make sense? Does that help at all? Yeah, Pam. I don't want to get off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> at this point. Okay. Like, well, okay, so there's different strains of Judaism now. Some do still work to keep the Jewish laws. They're called Hasidic Jews, right? Which is basically Hebrew for strict. Like they're still rocking it. Yeah. And they, they try to do the whole haircut thing, and the, you've seen them dressed up like Jewish people. Yeah. And they still strive to keep the Jewish laws the food laws, not the sacrifices. So remember, what happened is in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, there's no longer a place to offer sacrifice. So the sacrificial system just disappeared. And this was part of the reason that we have synagogues, Synagogues are basically a way for you to gather as, as Jewish people, but not go to the temple. Okay? So when everyone lives in Jerusalem, it's really easy to go to the temple. But when you live a long ways away and don't have a car, you have to walk, not everyone gets to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. So they set up synagogues, and synagogues is, is literally the word for gathering together, right? Synagogue, to gather together. And, it, and what you're gathering together around is, you know? The Torah. The Torah. Very good. So, so instead of gathering in the temple to offer sacrifices, now we're gathering around the Torah. 
okay? And the Torah, remember the Torah is literally the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. But the Torah also became, for the Jewish people who couldn't go to Jerusalem, it became the presence of Yahweh in the midst of his people. Just think that through for a second. The Torah became the presence of God in the midst of his people. Now, come on Sunday, we'll talk about the Gospel of John. Remind me to talk about the Torah, Jesus as the Torah. Because actually one of the ways you read the book, the book of John is that Jesus is walking around saying, uh, I'm the Torah. Torah, Torah, I am the Torah. And they're like, no, you can't be the Torah because Moses wrote the Torah. He's like, I'm so much better than Moses. You have no idea. They're like, we're going to kill you for saying that. He's like, yeah, you will. <laughs> Unlike Moses, I will rise from the grave. And they're like, wow, no. And he goes, yeah, I really am. So anyway, um, so what happens in the synagogues, they start gathering on Torah, which means they can't have a sacrificial system. And as the sacrificial system falls away, so do the other laws. Okay? So, so now you have different branches of Judaism basically hold to different strains of... So then you have rabbinic. You have rabbinic theology. You have the Mishnah. And you have the Targums. Targumim. Okay? And these are different sources for Jewish teachings on how to live the Jewish life. Okay? And rabbinic theology tells you some ways to live. The Mishnah is really where we get all these Pharisaic laws, like how many steps you can take on the Sabbath and the 490 laws or whatever, the 615 laws. That's really in the Mishnah. The Targumim is are actually Aramaic commentaries on the Torah. So... Um, if you've read the book of Ezra or the book of Nehemiah, especially it's in Ezra explicitly, they read the law out loud and people are interpreting it as they're reading it out loud. Well, that's what the Targumim are. These, are. these are Aramaic interpretations of the Torah that were read in synagogue. Okay? So they're kind of their Bible study type thing on the Torah. And these then would become a lot of how the Jewish people would understand how to read, how to live Torah after the temple's been destroyed. Does that make sense? So they stop, they kind of see that now that the temple's destroyed, God doesn't require us to keep all the temple things because there's no way to do them anymore. We can't go to Jerusalem, we can't go to temple, and there is no tabernacle. Right. Right. So they think if they restore the temple, then we're going to restore all the laws. We're going to go back to the good old days when we were killing sheep. Okay? I mean, seriously, that's what they think. And so when, when, Jerusalem, when Israel got, got um, independence as a nation in 1948 or, or 9 or 7 or 6 or whatever it was, I wasn't alive. In the 40s, everyone went, wee! Messiah is going to come because Jerusalem is going to be back, right? And so then when the, when the Muslims built the Temple of the, of the Rock or the Dome or whatever it is, um, they all went, what? That didn't really work out. And so now what's happening is there's this, there's this continual tension in Jerusalem because the Jews are like, we have to rebuild the Temple in order to welcome Messiah. And the Muslims are like, we're not going to let you do that. This is our holy place now. And the Christians are like, huh, this is kind of odd, Right? And Lutherans are going, well, we don't care. What do we care? I mean, it's a cool place to go on a trip, I guess, but Jesus is not worried about... If you want to know where the temple is, you go where Jesus promises to be, right? Where does Jesus promise to be? Word and Where do you find these things? Is that bound by a physical location? Is that bound by a time? Is that bound by the color of your skin? Is that bound by the language you speak? See? It's now, it's now all in Christ Jesus. All of it. The land promises, the temple promises, the sacrifice promises, the food laws. It's all in Christ. Christ said my body is the temple. That's right. 
So in John 2, which we're going to get to eventually on Sundays. That's exactly right. So the fulfillment of the temple is the very body of Christ. And then he says, you're my body. And you go, this doesn't look like a temple. And he goes, well, you know, I see things differently. Right? So I'm telling you, when you look around on Sunday morning, I do this every Sunday, I'm looking, and you see someone else confessing the creed with you, you go, surely the Lord is in his holy temple. Right? Let the earth keep silence. Habakkuk 2.20. This is the promise of God, is that he will have a remnant. He will keep a faithful people in every nation. Right? And the Holy Spirit will work faith in your heart. That's what he does. You want evidence? Look around you. You're not the only one who showed up tonight. That means they believe this too. Which is good news for me. It's really upsetting when I teach no one shows up. I'm the only one who believes this stuff. No, well, I'm not, right? That's because the Holy Spirit is continuing to build the temple. The body of Christ. That's you. You are the holy temple. You ever heard this? Doesn't Paul say this? Well, don't you know that your, your body is the temple? Like, what? It's like, well, in Christ, that's what you are. You're holy. See how it works? Does that make sense? So, so we do not long for the days of the physical resurrection of the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah. If it happens, I guess it'd be weird, but it won't do any good spiritually. Our temple has been raised. Right? If you missed it, come back Sunday. We'll do it again. <laughs> but on the third day, the temple of God was restored and he lives forevermore. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, it's time to go. Any quick questions before we go? If you have something that would take longer than two seconds, come see me afterwards. Yeah, Craig. So the modern day Jew does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Right, they don't believe he's the Messiah. Was there, was there a defining point in history where that philosophy that's, pervasive? That's a very good question. Um, and the answer is yes and no. Um, the, the easiest answer is when the Jews rejected Jesus and crucified him, they stopped being the people of God. So when the Jews said, his blood be on us and our children... That is the moment at which they said, we're not with Jesus. But that is not true for every single individual. As Cornelius shows us here, because we're probably eight years later, and he's still a person believing in the Jewish God, and God is hearing his prayer as a faithful person. So we're in this fuzzy time now when there are so, some people who are still believing in the Old Testament, and then when they hear about Jesus, they're like, yeah, that's exactly who of it, that's it. Right? So they're kind of in that fuzzy time where some individuals are still kind of Old Testament believers but become part of the church. But as far as the Jewish nation overall, in a kind of a corporate idea, it's at the death and resurrection of Jesus that they no longer belong to the true religion. Right? Remember, Christianity does not start with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christianity starts with Adam and Eve. The promise to Adam and Eve in the garden of the Savior. Judaism as a religion starts with the, with the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Right? So that's kind of the answer is, if you were to say it in a historical way, you'd say, when they crucified Jesus and said, you're not our Messiah, that's when they started a different religion, really, to be totally blunt, and, and we can talk about this later if we want, not worshiping the God of the Old Testament anymore. Right? Because the God of the Old Testament is the father of Jesus. This is why Jesus says, you can't come to the father except through me. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we're hungry. We're hungry for the food that comes from your hand, the food that truly satisfies, the food of eternal life. So we thank you that Again this night you come to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, to tell us that you have given us the bread that satisfies, that we have eaten, and that we now live forever with you. 
So in these days of our pilgrimage, as we grow hungry and weary, keep us strong with your word. We might truly live on every word that proceeds from your mouth. In our days, we also rejoice that you provide for our physical bodies as well. Keep us ever thankful. And let us live our lives in love, that we might be a witness to those around us of your amazing love and forgiveness in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So keep us now safe this night as we travel home, and let us sleep in your eternal peace. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.